Welcome to Investing Insights, partnered by Right Property Group. This is your host, Phil Tarrant. Okay, everyone, welcome to Investing Insights with the Right Property Group, our monthly podcast that we do in conjunction with our good friends at the Right Property Group and their directors, Steve Waters and Victor Kumar. Guys, how are you going? Welcome into the studio. Well, how are you going, mate? I'm good. Welcome back, Victor. I know uh, last time we got together, um, when me and Steve had a look at the market, we had a very detailed conversation around where we're headed for 2018. You weren't with us. And no, I thought I wasn't. that was the best podcast we ever did, Steve. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> greatest amount of listens, reviews, ratings. <laughs> Sorry, mate. That's no, good to see you back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at a loss of words for once. Oh, mate. You know, it's the only way to be. It's a lot, I like to start a podcast with a little dig. You know, it's uh, it helps. But no, it's good to have you back, Victor. And That's I think right, you're yeah. going to uh, going to need to draw on your years of uh, experience and talent to uh, guide us through this episode of Investing Insights with the Right Property Group because we're doing a and a day. We've been aggregating, curating a whole bunch of questions over uh, the last number of months. Uh, so thank you everyone for for writing in uh, to ask us, uh, well, bring your questions in for us to answer live on air, which we're going to do today. And what I've done, rather than, um, there's been quite a lot of uh, common themes coming through the questions. So rather than answer specific questions from uh, some of you, and hello, Peter, I know you sent one through and thank you for that, but um, uh, I've sort of pulled them up into a couple of different themes and I thought we'd sort of use them to steer our way through this particular podcast. You guys okay with that? Yep. Yep. Let's do it. All right. So the first theme, and I hope you guys can help me steer our listeners through uh, this particular concept. And what it is, it's essentially in a rapidly rising property market, often rents stabilize quite a lot, but then prices start to slow down and rents start to go up. Can you explain this to me? Because uh, I've always looked at it and I'm seeing it right now in our city city properties that we hold in our portfolio. But some of the questions we've been getting in is around this. So Victor, what does it mean? How does it work? Well, it's definitely a cyclical thing. So as, as property prices go up, obviously the rents don't keep up with the um, how rapidly the prices go up. Uh, and so therefore, what you see in that area is that the yields actually start dropping off. Uh, and uh, often uh, what happens is that people haven't corrected for that as quickly, so they're still trying to pursue the same yield. So, And especially as the market heats up and more and more investors jump in the market, more constructions happen, there is a w- wider variety of choices for the tenants uh, and especially in today's market a lot of tenants are also jumping into home ownership as well so you get this temporary um, uh, Im- temporary imbalance of um, of uh, the number of tenants or their uh, appetite for different types of properties to rent out and the number of properties that are available uh, so you need to correct for that uh, in the sense that you need to start becoming a lot more realistic in what you're asking for in terms of a rent and for tenants that you've already got in place you want to be uh, locking them back into leases as well traditionally what happens is that the rent correction usually follows a couple of years after you've had a good run in terms of pricing Uh, and often people uh, panic and say that now the the area is going bad because you can't rent the properties quick enough but the fundamentals are still good. You just need to correct it for the rental uh, amount that you're asking for or what you're doing to the property to make it more presentable. So it's just supply and demand. Supply and demand, yeah. Okay. And, and what I saw in my portfolio, Steve, and I know you can help me out with this, um, probably two, three years ago, particularly in the western suburbs of Sydney, using that as an example, Mount Druitt, St. Mary's, et cetera, there were so many investors buying out there that it put a lot of supply into the marketplace and there was downward pressure on, on rents. And we often had to renew our leases 
five, ten bucks lower than what they were. So this is what we're talking about right now. So we've seen that now. How's it looking out there? You know, a rent stabilizing and a rent's going to start increasing. Seeing that we've seen price growth temper a little bit. I look, I think it'll be a while before we mm. get that increase in in rent uh, cash flow again. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of people have this this idea that rents keep pace with growth and and they don't. And there's you, you have that inflection point where rents start to cover all expenses and you become positive cash flow and there's supposed to be some formula around time in that. And it, it just doesn't exist. It takes a long time for rent to exceed all mortgages. And that is if you don't tap into the equity and what have you. But in relation to supply and demand in a, in a rising market, and if we look at the western suburbs of Sydney and even certain parts of Brisbane uh, now, is that as prices grow, we'll call it quickly, but you know, in line with averages and what have you, you start to see a lot of owner-occupiers sell their property. So people that have been there for such a long period of time, they might have, might have paid thirty, forty, $50, $100,000 for their property, and they start to see these new price points. So they sell their property, and often it's an investor that buys it. So that's another accommodation that comes onto the rental market that wasn't there before. Plus, if you add in perhaps some um, new house and land packages scattered amongst the area, there is more supply. So mm. you will see a start of easing of the rents uh, over a period of time. But we can't also forget that a lot of the reasons why the prices start to move to begin with is because there's an undersupply and big rents to begin with or high cash flow. So that's why investors chase these markets and rightly so. But as more accommodation comes onto the market, rents come back to perhaps normality would be a good way to, to describe it. Uh, but people get mixed up, as Vic said, by saying, well, the market's going backwards. It's not. It just hasn't kept pace with growth. I think, uh, Steve, you mentioned the inflection point, and I think we need to spend a little bit more time on that in the sense that there are a lot of um, property commentators that are actually talking about you know, the rents covering the mortgage and so forth. Uh, and uh, perhaps the message is being misread in the sense that it's likely to happen within the next like, couple of years. The reality of it, so let's say you bought a property today, uh, the reality of it, it would be that the inflection point would probably come one, maybe two property cycles down the track because that's how long it takes for the rents to actually catch up. So if you are investing uh, in, in property and you are hoping that within, say, two or three years that uh, you know your rent will um, far surpass your outgoings, especially in the Sydney market, you're going to wait for a little while. Yeah, you'd probably wait for at least two cycles. So uh, a lot of people that have bought properties, say, in the in the early 2000s, definitely they, they, they've gone past that inflection point. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, those that are buying now, they've got a little bit to wait. Well, even if you look at, like, if I take my first property or one of my first properties, and, and same with you, Vic. So mine was, um, it was 105000 uh, just down the road from one of yours, oh, Big Phil. spender. Massive yeah. spending. It, um, <laughs> Which year was this? Yeah, I don't remember now. It's like 2000 or Probably something like that. back in the 70s, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point in time, the rent was 105000 The rent was 140 or $50 a week for that property. Now, let's assume that I just had 100% debt on that. So I reached back in and I recycled my initial deposits or my capital back out. So that it sits at 110% rent, uh, 110% mortgage. The rent on that today is $350 a week. Now, if I assume that that was still 110% debt, so let's say $10,000 mortgage, it would be positive. Self-sufficient, yeah. Yeah, but not enough for me to retire on, even if I had 10 of them. 
Mm. So the, the whole, this inflection point has taken many, many years, and that's in today's interest rate. So if it goes up to 6% or 6.5% uh, cost of money, my profitability from that property in terms of cash flow would have eroded. So when people talk about a higher, a, a higher asset valued uh, property, so let's say seven hundred and fifty thousand, and people um, want to follow the strategy whereby that inflection point is sooner rather than later. They're going to be in a world of hurt, I believe, if rates go up and if they haven't got their timing. As, as you say, two mm. cycles, That's not right. one cycle, not and five two years. Two cycles can be can be any time. Twenty yeah, so years, yeah, 20 years could years. be five years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, just to clarify, Steve, the property you're talking about, it's not in Whoop Whoop, it's in metropolitan Sydney. It's in the western suburbs of yeah, Sydney. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. So this whole sort of rents following price growth is it's different for everyone, depending on how large your portfolio is, what your debt level is, uh, all this sort of stuff. It's just the way it works. That's right. And it comes out of cash flow. Mm-hmm. It's purely cash flow thing. So mm-hmm. does this, is this dynamic going to influence the way in which you can continue to hold a portfolio or grow your portfolio? That's what we're talking about? Yeah, 100%. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I hope we've dealt with that okay. Uh, Victor, let's get you write a piece on that, I think, and, and get down yep. into the numbers and stuff. We'll put it on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. So I think it's important, but people need to remember, and I guess by way of a disclaimer, everything we talk about today is just general in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not talking about any specific portfolio, but everyone's circumstance is going to be different. So uh, this dynamic is something that you need to have a chat about with if you use a buyer's agent or you're an, you're an accountant. There's also a finance player as well in this. So anyway, I think let's do more on that, um, but that'll do for the moment because we don't have a lot of time. I guess this this theme connects in with this, and and there was a couple of people wrote in about this. Victor, uh, should I fix my interest rate right now, considering the current market? Well, the first thing that you need to understand is you're betting against the bank. They've got a larger research arm, and even they don't know where the interest rates are likely to head. Yep. So, um, you know, by saying that you're going to fix and and thinking that you're going to have the upper hand, that's probably the wrong way to approach it. I would approach it more in terms of okay, what have I planned for that particular property, and am I going to do a development on it? Am I going to do a renovation on it? Am I going to put a granny flat on it? And is the current lender the right lender for this? And if I fix the loan with that lender, does that lock me in? with that lender in terms of the strategy for that property. That's the first thing you need to look at before you even start thinking of fixing loans. Um, Once you've ascertained that the lender is a lender that will be with you long term based on your plans for that particular property, uh, by fixing the loans, you're really uh, containing the biggest cost in your investment journey, which is the interest component. So it gives you a lot more surety. Uh, Certainly, I would... Um, if I if I look at it from a generic point of view, uh, I would certainly fix the loan if there is going to be a, a bit of uncertainty in my income. Uh, so let's say I'm moving from PAYG to self-employed. So I know that I'm dealing with finite numbers uh, in that sense, that the numbers won't change in terms of the repayments on that pro- uh, property. If I'm planning to uh, buy and hold for long term and I'm comfortable with the interest rate that's being offered, um, I might fix for two, maybe three years, maybe five years, depending on the rates that I get and whether it's interest only or principal and interest. Um, knowing also that if you're holding multiple properties, try and stagger the fixed rates so that you know some are expiring in, say, two years, some are expiring in three years, four years, so forth, so that they don't all come online at once because generally uh, you will have a double whammy which is one when they come off the fixed rates they're likely to also if you've still got them come off the interest only 
component, so it'll be principal and interest, and it's also likely that it'll come online, in other words, become variable, at a time when the interest rates are substantially higher. So if you have your entire portfolio all of a sudden turn principal and interest, and, you, and your fixed rate were, let's say, let's say at 4.5% right now, and say two years down the track, uh, it's come off fixed rate and it's come for, into principal and interest. So there's obviously an added component of repayments that you need to make. And let's say the interest rates at that time were 6%. So you've basically gone from a really low cash flow base to a big component of massive money coming out of your pocket. So you need to plan this, those through before you go down the path of uh, fixing loans. And I guess the, the other component a lot of people think is that once you've fixed a loan, you can't tap into the equity of that property. Provided you still qualify with that lender for more money, you can always tap into the equity. You quarantine the fixed loan and you create a secondary account, a second split in the mortgage, that, that is the equity component that you're trying to release. So, you know, there's a lot of variables in there, mm. talking about fixed rates and variables, yeah. a lot of variables in there, but um, I think each property you need to look at it from its own merits as to what the plan is for that property, what's happening in your life, uh, what's happening in your cash flow before you make that decision. So, Steve, just on Victor's point there, so an, an individual property can have multiple mortgages on it. So you can have a, a fixed rate component, and then should you want to realise some of the equity in that property to whether it's to do a reno on it or, or put that money elsewhere, you can just take another loan out, which is potentially an interest only, um, and you pay another rate on. Yeah. Is that how it works? It is. Um, the only problem that you could potentially have is by staying with the same lender, you may not get the valuation that you need right. to release mm. enough okay. uh, equity. And we've seen that in the past regularly, where once the bank has your business, they don't have to do a lot to keep it. Mm. Uh, and often a valuation from another lender will be, will be much better. Um, the other... Just going on a little bit further from what Vic said, it's not hard to model the cash flow when you fix your rates, uh, whether it be P&I or, or uh, interest only. So take the time to sit down and actually put together an Excel sheet or even on the back of an envelope to see where these cash flow scenarios are going to take you. Be very careful though, however, to, to be uh, attracted to the one-year fixed rate where often they're the best that's out there because you might be taking a short um, or, a, or a lower interest rate now, but it's only a short-term fix. Usually called a honeymoon rate. Too, honeymoon right? rate. Yeah. That's exactly it. And mm. so what it is is, if if you are reliant upon that short-term fix, well, then there's a bigger problem somewhere deeper that you need to address the cash flow issues uh, rather than taking a one-year fixed rate. And then, as Vic said, make sure they're not all expiring at the same time. Mm. Personally, I, I I'm a fan of the five-year fixed rate. Uh, that's just me. So personally. if you got to fix, you fix. Yeah, it's like I, I can sleep well. Mm. Um, as Vic said, it's your biggest expense taken care of. Um, three years, okay, but I certainly wouldn't once again have them all at the same time. And even some P&I rates uh, mm. at the moment are very, very attractive. So so just on that note, um, there's another question that's come up from our, our listeners to Investing Insights of the Right Property Group is, are the banks only willing to give me a, a principal and interest loan should I take it you know traditionally investors take interest only and they hedge against price growth um, mm. uh, lending requirements are changing quite rapidly and uh, the government the prudential regulator APRA uh, want Australians not to be taking on debt they want to be reducing debt so often banks are now only providing P&I alternatives for investors what do you do oh look I think if that's if that's the only loan you can get uh, based on a you know, number of factors and you can afford it then do it like mm. it's you're doing two things. What you're taking advantage of the lowest cost of money we've ever seen, 
uh, it may give you a better chance to get a higher LVR to, you know, conditions apply, all that sort of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also paying off principal and whilst money is so cheap, it's a pretty good time to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to say an offset where you need to have full discipline to be able to handle an offset facility. I'm a fan of it, yeah, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. But there's a number of factors you need to take into account. One, your cash flow scenario, can you afford it? Um, and it's not a matter of can you afford it now, but can you afford it next year and the year after that and so on. Uh, and so if you are getting into a P&I scenario because you have to, maybe look at fixing it as well mm. just to give you some security. Vic, you see the world the same way? Yeah, I, I see the world the same way. Um, you know, a, a lot of people get caught up in the rhetoric of things and, and um, you know, what the book said uh, or what the seminar said. Uh, at the end of the day, you are successful in building a larger portfolio for one reason and one reason only, which is the bank lending you the money. Mm. And if that's the only way they'll lend you the money, that's that's how it rolls. And and when it comes off its principal interest, hopefully the market's changed at that point in time. You could go back to interest only if, if that, that floats you about. Um, there are some rules around investing. This is one that's, I think it's pretty flexible, right? So a lot of people invest based on tax reasons and that's why all of the books all of the uh, seminars say that you know you always get interest only loans but it's it's whichever way the bank gives you the money in at a reasonable rate that's what you're after at the end of the day it's a game of finance property is just the vehicle that's Mm. right Mm. good point this next theme question is three or four of these coming actually and uh been wondering how to deal deal with this with you guys, but I'm going to deal with it head on. And uh, we see it a lot also on uh, smart property investment. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like I might be getting lined up. Yeah, you are. Um, um, and, and I get a lot in the, the, the just chatting with investors on the street. It's this whole thing around why should you pay a buyer's agent to do a job that you can do yourself? So That's a good question. you guys are in the studios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you say? Like you, I don't know what you guys are charging now as your, your fee for, for sorting this out. Not enough, is it? <laughs> but um, the way it works is that people pay you guys a fee for you guys to provide the service of buyer's agent. We've been gone down a path of what a buyer's agent does, but you can do it yourself. Why should you pay you guys? Um, great question. I think that the, the very first thing though to, to and how to answer this question is having a look at the role of a buyer's agent. Uh, people tend to just throw the word around buyer's agent, buyer's advocate, mm-hmm. and think that it's all encompassing in it, mm-hmm. and it's not. Uh, in its true sense, a buyer's agent is where you give them a scope I want the four bedroom house with a purple roof on the moon and the buyer's agent's job is to go and get that. Yeah. Now, a strategist, however, is all is probably the next level where it's creating the strategy, the buyer's agent then implements the strategy via the asset, then the follow on after that. I think the main reason for a buyer's agent, because that's what the question is rather than the whole encompassing strategy uh, or property advisor, is that their time in the market, uh, they can take emotion out of it if, it, if you're looking for a place to, to live in, uh, and they can just be a numbers only person. But they also have, once again, their time in the market. So they're in the market every day and all the little nuances and, and ups and downs of a market they can feel every day. Whereas if you're going into the market by yourself uh, and doing it all yourself, you have to take time to learn the market, where it's at, what are the good streets, the bad streets, good end of town, bad end of town, so on and so forth. You'll then buy that property, you'll withdraw from the market. When it's time to go again as an investor, you'll then have to learn the market all over again because it has changed. So they have their finger on the pulse would be the first uh, reason. The second reason would be that, and these are good ones, of course, Mm. uh, good buyers agents, they should have multiple relationships with multiple different agents um, because at the end of the day, it's a people industry and people talk talk 
off-market opportunities quite a lot and there is a place and a, there is a time for those and sometimes you'll get them but it's really about the, the relationships with the agents um, and knowing how particular contracts work based on you know, state reliant of course. Uh, I, would, I would say that it's more taking, it's a time thing as well. You know, how much time do you want to spend in it? Um, how much do you want to miss the opportunity? That's not me trying to plug a buyer's agent because I do believe there are good ones and there are probably ones that aren't so good. Uh, and lastly, I would say whoever, if you do choose to use a buyer's agent, make sure they're sufficiently licensed, uh, no matter what the state or wherever the state that the, you tend to, you will be investing in. Make sure they've got years of experience uh, would be another one. And make sure that you ask for testimonials, but not written ones because you can write your own testimonial, I suppose. <laughs> so mm. ask for people to speak to that uh, you can have a conversation with and, and see how that they perform for you and make sure they have enough processes uh, in place to be able to handle the transaction for you. Mm. So it's value for money then, Victor? You, you right, must yeah. agree, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Big smile on his face. <laughs> and, and I think uh, that, uh, you know, what, what a good buyer's agent brings to the table um, is the catalyst, which is, you know, you, you're getting there faster. You're getting there in a more point, yeah. defined, focused way, as opposed to, you know, doing property investing uh, in a haphazard way because you've got your work to do in the in the daytime and you're trying to do this in the weekend in the evenings uh whereas this is what a buyer's agent does that mm. that's that's you know being Every day. property full-time mm. yeah having sorry but having having said that at the end of the day if you if you do have the time and you and you have the ability to research and and you love the thrill of the chase as long as there is a Mm-hmm. a catch at the end of it mm. then do it by all means like do it yourself if that's what you're really into and i completely agree with you steve um you know we we, we speak i'm me personally I'm, I'm pro buyer's agent i'm pro buyer's agent because of my circumstances and i don't have i love the chase but i have the time to be in the market so i'm, I'm happy to pay that fee for advice um but to echo your um thought steve go out there and do it yourself it's uh, it's good fun and uh I, I i chat with investors all day every day who um go about doing this themselves and don't use a buyer's agent um and they do very very well two points i'd make is that um number one it's a fair um question to ask um what you're getting for the money that you, you give to a buyer's mm. agent and if you're shopping around for a buyer's agent um i i recommend you ask that question exactly what are you getting for the service but point number two um and this is important uh, from from a property investor's perspective, not all buyers agents are created equal. Uh, some buyers agents, and and uh, for you that are familiar, I, I sit on the the board of Pippa, which is the Property Investment Professional Australia. So does Steve. Not all buyers agents are created equal, and some buyers agents might just be a vehicle for selling uh, off the plan properties and taking commission there. So I don't want to drill down into that too much today because it's it's spoken about and written about a lot. But uh, make sure if you are using a buyers agent that they actually an advocate who is looking after your interests and not the interests of someone else and the other someone else might be a property developer or a project marketer or someone else like that Correct. is that fair steve it's um 100 oh, and it would have yeah. been remiss i'm glad you mentioned people mm. because that's a it's a major part of a code of conduct that yeah. we all operate by yeah i think there are a lot of buyers agents or strategists out there or pop-up buyers agents or mm. strategists that, that are out there that perhaps haven't been around for enough cycles to really uh know what happens in a normal market because let's be Let's be really fair here. Today's market, especially what we've experienced over Sydney for the last five years, is above and beyond normality. Mm. Uh, and there are a lot of people giving advice out there or, or acting as buyers agents that have never seen mm-hmm. any other market than what we're experiencing today um, in terms of growth, but also the cost of money. Yeah. So 
it's about how the property or is the person giving you that advice know what how the property is going to perform in a not so good market mm. have they gone market. through the journey themselves have I they suppose. gone through the journey themselves so and that's a scar tissue right you know, and hurt money yeah. and made a lot of mistakes yeah yeah because I guess anyone could have been a good buyer's agent in Sydney over the last sort of five years, right? You know, it's pretty hard to get it wrong. Um, oh, 100%. You, know. you could have thrown a, a, a dart at the, the suburb board mm. and you'd have done all right. Mm. Okay. I think we did all right there. Um, interesting question. If you, you ask me, I'm editor at smartprintinvestment.com.au. Happy to give you some more insights into it. But uh, I thought you guys dealt with that reasonably. Um, Only reasonably. Only reasonably. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Only reasonably. <laughs> Good enough for today. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, so it is, you're a it reasonable is a, editor. It is a, <laughs> don't get carried away. <laughs> I'm an adequate editor. But go and ask that question. Make sure you're getting um, uh, value for the money you do spend if you choose to use a buyer's agent. If you don't want to use one, great. Go out and uh, have some fun. Enjoy the game. Next question. This is another theme. Um, and... In the context of my portfolio, I, I think about this myself. Um, essentially, the theme is, or the question is, are the properties you are buying today, i.e. you guys as buyers agents, um, the same as what you are buying 10 years ago? Are they the same? Fundamentally, short answer, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's how I look at my portfolio. Are the properties I'm buying today in my portfolio the same as the properties I was buying when I started investing in property? And fundamentally, they are. They're in different locations. Um, they've got often another zero on the end of them but they're because of the nature of the markets but they're fundamentally the same properties i.e under market value properties with propensity for growth and it's it different price point because different 10 years ago point. they were they were cheaper but fundamentally they're the same our strategy is uh, all our clients know and those that are perhaps new to the podcast uh, wouldn't know but our, our strategy is around affordability mm. affordability affordability wins every time whether it's a good market or a bad market or a normal market and so we tend to, we don't tend, we look for properties and areas that will all, always offer affordability, whether it be a price point for purchase, but also rentability, uh, which is very, very important because it's your cash flow at the end of the day. But 10 years on, we'll be paying a different amount of money. It'll still be affordable, but relative to that market at that point in time. Now, that's the base portfolio, the foundations of a good portfolio. Mm. As you get more experience, um, you will tend to purchase different things. So if I look at your portfolio, they're still affordable, but you're buying multiples now, so mm. blocks of units and, and what have you. Um, so it's a graduation process, isn't it? It is. It is. But you do your apprenticeship mm, and you graduate right. something yeah, good. Exa- yeah. Exactly. But you just don't want to go into the whole thesis. Yeah. We're going to go down that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that line. Steve, don't get into the academics. I know, right? Don't try and sound smart. Here, so, so, uh, isn't he a radiographer? <laughs> <laughs> He was refreshed. That's why he missed last podcast. He, he, was, was, he <laughs> went a little hard on himself. It's... Um, but what I would would urge is is don't get lured into the, you know a greed and ego scenario and start to want to be this massive developer or mm. yeah if you keep developing and you keep developing you will lose mm. sooner or later you are going to lose and you're going to lose big time. So I'm going to expand this question out the liberty of uh, being host or co-host of this show into an extension to it, Victor, and that is um, it's still the fundamental question, but it's different. So the properties you're buying today are the same as ten years ago? Yes, they are because they're still the same. The same, um, the backbone of them, are, are the commonality. A lot of people investing in property, I see it all the time, change strategies all the time. Mm-hmm. One day they're buying off the plan apartments, next time, next time they're buying um, multiple units out in the back of Burke somewhere, next time they're only buying properties over a million dollars, next time they're buying some sort of complicated cash flow orientated property which gives the best tax benefits known to man. There's a thousand different scenarios and strategies out there. 
So for people that jump around the next shiny thing, the next strategy, the next cash flow property investing in the US, what do you say to them people? Look, I think it boils down to something really simple mm. is that they haven't got the end goal in mind. They haven't got a vision for their portfolio to begin with. And so when they go, uh, and because they are in the looking zone uh, in terms of property investing, so when they go to a seminar or um, uh, you know listen to someone that's done well in a particular segment in the property market, they tend to say, oh no, that'll work because they don't know what they've already got. Mm. Uh, so they're not uh, not building on the building blocks that they've put down first, and they're trying to get all these shiny things in in the portfolio straight away. So it, it's really important that you take a step back and look at what you've got and where you're heading uh, before you start jumping around, changing strategies. Uh, because when you change strategies, realistically, it can take a couple of years for you to see the real fruits of your labor. And if you're that impatient, and and uh, let's say you're you're buying uh, renovation potential properties as an example. And you've done one or two, you've done okay. The third one wasn't that good. Then you went to another seminar and they said, uh, or or you talked to someone and they said, oh, I've done really well buying an off the plan apartment as an example. And you jump onto that because they've made money and you don't wanna miss out. I guess they're changing their strategies or changing um, what they're buying, where they're buying because of the fear of missing out on the growth. Real growth, so long as you stick to the fundamentals, happens over a period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. Yes, you do get this um, you know, renovation potential properties where you're pushing up the equity on the property, but it comes back to the strategy that was designed to begin with. Uh, and the strategy is in line with your cash flow tolerance. So I'm talking about negative cash flow tolerance, and it's in line with what can happen in the market, such as a rising interest rate, dropping rents to normalize at a normal level, or it could be a sovereign risk such as you know the government taking a negative gearing, as an example. If you've stuck to the fundamentals and, and stuck to one uh, way of investing, so long as it's, it's actually gaining you traction, uh, you'll do far better because there's, like you said, there's a million different ways of investing. I right. think that's that's yeah. the problem because people will change their their strategy based on someone else's result, which has just happened. Whereas it's a patience game, so that's that anything right. that you've implemented beforehand could take or does take years and years and years. So when you do change strategy based on someone else's results, just make sure that perhaps uh, they've been doing it for a long time mm-hmm. and judge but, it accordingly. But how do you know, Steve, if the strategy you're investing within right now is wrong? Like how, how do you how do you work that out? Uh, That's a great like. Usually, um, you won't, to be honest with you. Or if you're you know living on two minute noodles to support the portfolio, it's mm-hmm. probably not for you. It's the wrong strategy for you. Um, but often you won't know it's the wrong strategy until it's too late. Yeah. I think you need to take the time frame into account as to you know how long you've planned to get to your end result, whatever that may be, right? Whether it is to own a couple of properties or have that much cash flow and so forth, that'll determine whether you have got the right strategy in place. Because mm. you know, that's what will determine with together with the amount of capital you've got, your borrowing capacity, your appetite for risk in inverted commas, um, the circle of influences that you have around you in terms mm. of who you're rubbing shoulders with, mm. that'll determine whether it is it is a good portfolio or a bad port- portfolio that you're building up, right? And it still comes back to you got to get the fundamental, the baseline right first before you can then uh, you know allow yourself to uh, take uh, take diversions uh, in a portfolio. So if you've got a big enough base, 
then you can you can uh, have the indulgence to try a different strategy as such because the base is solid and it can absorb any mishaps or mistakes in the portfolio. So we've got a couple of minutes uh, left uh, on this podcast and I just want to pick something up. You said, uh, Victor, which I think is important, we, and you've mentioned as well, you talk about fundamentals. So as long as the fundamentals are right. So I think let's just really crystallise those uh, before we sign off this podcast, Steve. Um, what are the fundamentals, irrespective of your strategy, or are the fundamentals connected to a particular strategy? I think um, anyone listening to this podcast would have had some sort of research beforehand or had a, an idea that they want to get into property if they're not already in there. So they should know the fundamentals and the basics, you know, infrastructure, supply, demand, all that sort of good stuff, which mm. we, we know about. But for us, supply and demand, we, we look at it a little bit further. Uh, sorry, supply and demand. The fundamentals, we look a little bit further. For us, it's about consumer confidence because everything's a derivative of. Uh, supply and demand goes without saying and the price of money. Okay. Uh, don't get too bogged down into you know, how many bus stops there are on a street and, and things like that. As long as you're in a fundamentally correct metropolitan area, those three things that I've mentioned should take care of everything. Uh, the fundamentals for property investing, Victor, irrespective of the strategy you use, you want the property to go up in value and hopefully you want it to um, uh, not cost you too much mm. to hold it over time, right? So that's that's the vision, that's the goal, that's the objective. Um, and the fundamentals Steve's spoken about are the, are the things which will make, will help you achieve that Absolutely, that it will. Yeah. It would. And, yeah. and the, the other thing uh, to add to that, which is uh, what both Steve and I look at, is the liquidity factor, mm. right? So there's, there's three types of liquidity we're looking at. First of all is the liquidity in terms of finance. Is this property or is this area such that it, most lenders will lend money on it. So uh, it could be a high rise in the inner city apartment, which is which is a uh, you know size of a postage stamp. You struggle to get lending across all lenders, right? Um, then there's the liquidity in terms of the rental market. Can you rent this out? And is there a tenant market out there for this property? And then the, the humdinger is the liquidity on the property itself. If it did go wrong, is there a large enough pool of buyers that can buy it off you so in other words you don't go to the high end of town and buy a million dollar property and and uh, expect to be able to offload it really quickly if things go wrong for you Um, nothing wrong with buying a million dollar property it's just the cash flow and the affordability factor and as Steve mentioned uh, you know we we uh, prefer to buy properties in the metropolitan areas in the affordable corridors Mm. and the reason for that largely is the liquidity factor and even in a slow market, you'll still be able to offload that property and live to fight another day. So, so based on affordability, then you're saying that it's affordable for people to rent, number mm-hmm. one. It's affordable for people to buy if they're to an occupier, you, yeah. or it's affordable for another investor to pick it up because of its fundamentals that should continue. Correct. And, to do and it's, it's also affordable for you to hold on to the property. Mm. So it's it, the, the negative cash flow Which the property brings. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, the negative cash flow the property brings uh, is linked to your financial fingerprint, not not someone else's. It's linked back to your income and your lifestyle to say whether you can hold on to the property long-term. Long-term mm. wins the game. And that's what we need to do is, is focus on the long-term. Okay. And affordable means different things in Sydney different to affordable to, yeah. to different things in Queensland that's or right. Brisbane. So affordable in Sydney right now is what? Yeah, 600. 600 grand. Yeah. Affordable in Brizzy today is... Three, oh. three fifty. Yeah. You but know, like even though we say six hundred in Sydney, doesn't mean that you should be buying at this point in time. Yeah, you know, it's it's about where your money will work better for you. But mm. affordable also might mean a million dollars in a different area. Yeah, absolutely. It's whatever you're comfortable with. Okay, 
I've enjoyed that. Question and answers, Q&A. So, it's good. Um, yeah, it's good. Thanks, everyone, for uh, for writing in um, and, and the guys over at Right Property Group who have stuck all these together and give me uh, these questions. Uh, Victor, we'll do another one in the future. Um, how do people write in again? Absolutely. So if you just send an email to questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au, uh, we'll pick that up or just reach out on our Facebook page uh, and send us a private message. Excellent. And um, if you enjoyed this, uh, write in as well. And uh, we're happy to do a lot more of these because uh, you know, we've got a, a gazillion different topics that we can talk about. And I know uh, you guys do your, your regular um, uh, workshops with uh, investors both in Sydney and Melbourne, Melbourne where you talk about whatever's sort of current. But um, we, we, we also like to, to hear from you and understand what you're thinking so we can answer those questions direct. But if anyone wants to go to your, um, uh, your bi-weekly. The bi-weekly? Bi-weekly. Yeah. Monthly. Bi-2. Yeah, yeah bi-weekly. You do one in Sydney, one in um, Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. Where, where are they? Bi-monthly what are they? Then? Yeah. Um, Sydney's the first Tuesday of every yeah. month. First Monday or Tuesday. Monday or yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. And uh, Melbourne is the, the last, last Thursday. Thursday. You just get together and talk property. Yeah, we have different subjects and guest speakers and what have you. Okay. Um, and you know, we we encourage. It's more it's more like an open forum, so we encourage questions from the floor, so to speak. Okay. Very relaxed atmosphere, and we'll we'll take on any subject uh, that you want to throw at us. How do you register those, Vic? Sorry, did you go Facebook? Uh, just go something? to our Facebook page. So yeah. if you if you um, want to keep tabs off when the next one is, just like our Facebook page. You'll then get notified of um, uh, when the next one's uh, up and running. Cool. Nice one. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed that. Uh, we'll be back next time. Awesome. Investing Insights, Royal Property Group. And remember to check out all the uh, the other episodes uh, that we recorded. Wherever you're listening to this right now, you should see a big whole list of them. And um, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, um, we, we typically delve deep into some of the uh, um, more complicated or detailed parts of property investment and try and explain them uh, as easily as possible. So uh, you're well informed and you can make the right decisions when it comes to investing in property. I uh, hope you enjoyed. We'll be back next time. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.